This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let us pray. Almighty God, we ask you this morning to speak to our hearts as we explore and seek to understand your holy scriptures. Thank you for being faithful to meet us where we are, for being forever more committed to us than we could be to you. Give us eyes to see your goodness this morning through the words you spoke through your prophet Amos. And we ask that you realign our hearts in the ways you know we need it. In Christ's name, amen. Be seated. Two weeks in a row now, our Old Testament lectionary readings have taken us to the world of prophets in prophetic ministry in Old Testament Israel. Which is great, because if you were here last week, you heard Father Kevin lay some important groundwork for our thinking about the role of prophets in the way that God has used men and women throughout history to speak forth his words. One important takeaway for me from Kevin's sermon was that prophets often act as the conscience of a people, like a GPS that identifies where we are, how we got here, where we went wrong, and where to go from here. We saw that happening last week as we looked at the prophet Ezekiel, and we'll see it today too. But we're going to have to rewind in history a bit. So Ezekiel, who we heard from last Sunday, prophesied during the time when God's people had been expelled from their land, taken into Babylon, which was God's judgment on them after years of wicked living. Our reading this morning centers on the prophetic ministry of Amos, who prophesied in Israel just before the exile, about 40 years before the shoe dropped. In a time when Israel was experiencing political peace and economic prosperity. We're in about 8th century BC, and the king in power in Israel is Jeroboam II. Now, Jeroboam was a strong military leader, and he is credited for expanding the territory of Israel and generating wealth for the nation while he was in power. In many ways, his reign was comfortable for the people, it was a season of stability at least externally. But if we're talking morally, in terms of faithfulness and right living, things like that, we very quickly see a different portrait of Israel. See, Jeroboam II allowed for idol worship to take place throughout the land, the worship of Canaanite gods, as well as the illicit sorts of actions that accompanied worship of those gods. Turning to idols had long been a weakness for the Israelites, but it was embraced on new levels under King Jeroboam. And, not coincidentally, things like injustice and exploitation of the poor grew rampant. There were imbalances of power among the people, bribery in the courts of justice. The poor were sold into debt slavery and then unable to have legal representation. And if you know your Bible, you know that when those things are happening, God will have something to say about it. Our reading today is incredibly interesting. It's a vision shown to Amos, 
but a much simpler one than the glorious vision that knocked Ezekiel off his feet last week. This one is small, a common image, familiar, understandable. We read in Amos chapter 7, starting in verse 7, this is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. Now, if you don't know, prior to coming to Ascension, I worked in youth ministry, so I love a good visual aid. This passage is right up my alley. This is what we're talking about here. This is a plumb line or a plumb bob. Um, it's an ancient tool used for construction, but you can still get one for $3 at your local hardware store. It's a really simple idea. You can probably already tell how it works. It's just a weight attached to a string, which when you hold it out is pulled straight down by gravity, giving you an undeniable, precisely straight line. It's an objective measure, right? Which is especially helpful if the ground you're building on is not level. We see you, Pittsburgh, right? Or if what you're building is juxtaposed with something at a different angle. It can get really easy to use the wrong reference point I do this all the time with home projects. I hate taking the time to use a level and measure, and my home is covered in picture frames and shelves that are totally crooked. <laughs> That's a very mild example, but there can also be disastrous consequences to a measuring mistake. As a nation, we've been watching the story unfold of the catastrophic collapse of the condo building in Florida that took so many lives. And as experts have been trying to understand what, would, what happened? What would have made a building like this fall so suddenly, so hard? Some are wondering if it was a design flaw, some kind of construction error at the foundation that may have been the cause. Precise measurement in construction is everything. So God shows this image to Amos, holding a plumb line against a wall built true to plumb, meaning a wall that was constructed straight with the plumb line in view. Then the Lord continues, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be made waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with a sword. And the vision ends. We aren't given an exact, explicit interpretation of the vision, but especially with the surrounding context of Amos, the meaning seems to come forward pretty clearly. See, the wall that Amos saw was constructed true to plumb, in alignment with an objective reality or standard of how things should be. I think of how when God constructed his people Israel, he equipped them with what they needed to live life the way it should be. They had the Ten Commandments, the books of instruction for right worship and right living, and God's very presence to dwell with them. The plumb line, this standard by which they were called to live, how things should be, that they love God first and foremost, and that they love their neighbor. Loving God and loving others. This standard, this plumb line is perfectly in view in every law, every procedure, every instruction laid out by God for the people. It's important to note, I think, that the idea of love here, especially the idea of loving others, loving our neighbor, it means more than simply kindness. The idea of kindness, of courtesy, friendliness, has a lot of traction in our culture right now, right? You see t-shirts that say, be kind, and, and all over social media. But we often, as Christians, can reduce the command to love one another as being kind to our neighbors. 
But the biblical concept of neighbor love takes things much further than that. In the scriptures, to love your neighbor means to work for their well-being. It means a commitment to living justly, even if it costs you. It's a call for radical hospitality, for generosity, for self-sacrifice, for ensuring that no one in the community gets unfair treatment, regardless of their social status. That is what Israel was created to be, what they were built to be. Here in Amos, many years since the birth of that nation, we have a depiction of God holding out a plumb line among the people, the same one used to construct this wall, but now we hear a pronouncement of judgment. The implication is that when Israel is now measured according to their love of God and their love of others, they are found wanting. It seems that the wall has begun to lean. And as one skims through the book of Amos, God's accusations against the people of Israel are extensively spelled out, but they come down to the abandonment of this great command to love God and their neighbor. Israel has turned from God to idols and committed and allowed for social injustice to rampage the nation. In Amos 2, God declares that he is judging the people because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. Idolatry and mistreatment of others. This pairing is not a coincidence. In fact, Israel is a case study in how the first leads to the second. When they abandon their devotion to the one true God, their commitment to justice, to caring for one another went with it. Because you cannot separate love for God and love for others. The true justice-seeking love for the neighbors that we, are called to, that we are called to flows out from in alignment with our love of God. In fact, you can't have one without the other, though we've tried. If you think I'm wrong about that, I invite you to look at a few examples from history. First, what happens when there is love for God but not love for others? I think of the countless men and women in American history, Christian men and women, for whom the concept of slavery, of owning other human beings like you own cattle, had no conflict with their belief in a God who was love. Or Christians who lived in the days of the segregated South, the church leaders who urged civil rights activists to stop their work because it caused too much of a disturbance or because it wouldn't accomplish what they hoped. These weren't just pretenders or or cultural Christians. These were real believers, dedicated church people, pastors and theologians, many of whose names we know. The American church for years tried to love God, but when they failed to love others, when they turned away from the cries of injustice, it revealed that they didn't love God. Their hearts were not aligned to his heart as well as they thought. On the other hand, Many have fought for the love of others, for justice in the well-being of their neighbor, yet divorced from the love of God. I think of the many movements and campaigns seeking to rectify social injustice in our culture right now, many of which I agree with and believe are well-intentioned. People want a society that is equitable for all and just and inclusive. It's a beautiful vision, and it honestly sounds like the kingdom. 
But apart from the presence of God, it can't get us there. A pastor named Mark Sayers points out that this secular idea of progress, what it really wants is the kingdom without the king. Western culture wants the fruit of life with God, inclusion, equity, true neighbor love, without the presence and reign of God himself. And this spans political spectrums and ideologies, and we've seen throughout history, we're seeing currently how it doesn't work. There have been incredibly valuable contributions made and needed societal changes. But ultimately, those things won't get us to the vision of the kingdom that we long for. Because when you take love of neighbor and strip it of the presence and love of God, what you're left with is a love for one another that's incredibly fragile and short-lived. So love of God and love of neighbor work together as an indivisible unit. And if this was the mark of a well-aligned wall, Israel was crumbling. They had turned away from God, and because they had done so, they had ceased to be a community who cared for one another, especially the poor. It's as if God sees the treatment of societies vulnerable as the flag, the symptom, that indicates the sickness that's infected the nation as a whole. The measuring line had been held up. And it exposed that this wall, this community, is no longer structurally sound. Israel is not being who they were created to be. I wonder if we considered this plumb line being held up against our own lives, individually and as a community, what would it expose about us? Is there continuity between our love for God and our love for for our neighbors. For Israel, the care of the vulnerable was indica- indicative of the health of the community. They've neglected the poor, the widows, the orphans, and the foreigners in their land. Pastor Tim Keller encourages us to expand this list for, for our time and include folks like refugees, the homeless, formerly incarcerated individuals, kids in the foster system, many single parents. If held up to us, our community, What would this plumb line expose? Would it expose that we've attempted to love God without engaging in love for our neighbors? And here's the thing about prophetic messages. They can sound very dark and final. But God's act of sending a messenger to his people is a grace. To be a voice of warning, of invitation to come back, to reconcile to God and to do things differently. The plumb line has exposed who Israel has become. That exposure, while painful, can be a gift. In Amos chapter 5, we hear these words, Seek the Lord and live. Hate evil, love good. Maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy. This is what I love about the image of a plumb line. It's used here as a measure of critique, right, of judging the crookedness of Israel. But it can serve as more than that. In fact, it was meant to. A plumb line is primarily a tool for construction, for building, for building something good. Its purpose is creative, and there is hope in that because it means there's an invitation. But it's not an invitation to simply try harder or be better. 
to up the intensity of our devotion to God and our love for others by sheer power of will. No, Israel was invited to return to communion with God, to seek him and live, to be so realigned with the heart of God that righteous living and love of neighbors would spill out, would overflow. We too are invited to seek the Lord and live. But how much greater is our invitation because in Christ, our Lord has come and sought us. See, in the incarnation, when the eternal Son of God took flesh and entered, he entered fully into the crookedness of humanity. Christ brought into himself all that it means to be human in our crumbling, leaning, and idol-chasing state. And he did things differently. Jesus, in his life on earth, measured up to the plumb line. The only person to have ever loved God perfectly and whose perfect love for God poured forth perfect love for others. Christ stands perfectly aligned with the heart of the Father. And the hope of our salvation this morning is that he brings us with him. This changes everything for us. Because the requirement to love God above all and love our neighbors, it still exists, but it's no longer a standard way out there for us to look at and, and hold ourselves up to. Rather, the standard for what God requires is embodied in the person of Jesus. And it's as we commune with him that we are formed into his likeness, which means we are formed into alignment with this plumb line we begin to look more like Christ. We copy him. We do the things he does and care about the things he cares about. As the church, we have the hope that we are being built up into a community that is increasingly true to plumb. We're not there yet, which is why we need these Sunday gatherings. Our time together in worship, the community, the liturgy, it's all shaped intentionally to orient us toward Christ, the plumb line, and to move our hearts in alignment with his missional, self-giving love for others. Hearing the great commandments to love the Lord our God with all our hearts and souls and minds, to love our neighbors as ourselves, as we're about to confess corporately the way that we failed to do those things, as we sing songs of praise to God and pray for the church and for the world, these are identity-forming things that pull us deeper into the love of God and compel us out toward greater love for one another. It is simple, in a way. Love God and love others. It's about as basic as you can get. It's Christianity 101. But we never get quite past it. None of us have mastered this calling, and as we look around in our communities, we see significant unmet need. Hearing the scriptures read, like God's words through Amos this morning, offers us an invitation to reflect on ourselves, to engage in this calling as a community, to remember the gravity of what it is we're doing here in the great work that Christ desires to do in and through us. Amen.